Pope Francis, Cause or Result of the Crisis in the Church, a conference given by Christopher Ferreira at the 2019 Army of Advocates Conference in Houston, Texas, hosted by the Fatima Center. So, as a lawyer, I'm expected to tell a lawyer joke, I suppose, before I bury you in misery. So, what do you call a smiling and courteous person at a bar association convention? Answer, the caterer. <laughs> but I, I am a lawyer, I'm not a doctor, and uh, it's, it's said that there are only three types of lawyers, those who are good at math and those who aren't. Let that sink in. <laughs> so my marching orders for this talk were given to me by Kevin in an email, and I'm happy to quote from it. And he basically summarized what I'm supposed to be doing today. And it is quite correct to say at this point in what I would call the Bergolian debacle, it's time to take a wider view of our situation, looking beyond Francis, to the great arc of the past 55 years, and even beyond that, way beyond that. I'm going to tell a very big story in a very small amount of time. I'll do the best I can. But we have to look, first of all, at the entire turbulent and destructive epoch following the Second Vatican Council, during which we have witnessed a collapse of faith and discipline in the church, the likes of which she has never witnessed in 2,000 years. And that collapse of faith and discipline began with what Cardinal Ratzinger has called a collapse of the liturgy, and I'm quoting him. I'm convinced, said the future Pope Benedict XVI, that the ecclesial crisis in which we find ourselves today depends in great part on the collapse of the liturgy, which sometimes comes to be conceived as if God does not exist, as if it no longer matters whether God is there and is seen and heard in it. But if in the liturgy there no longer appears the communion of the faith, the universal unity, of the church and her history, where does the church appear in her spiritual substance? For the future pope to say that is about as devastating an indictment of the liturgical reform as I could ever conceive of on my own, and I'll leave it at that. But for those who don't understand how we've arrived at this situation, it is necessary to show what, what Kevin mentioned to me in the email, and I'm quoting him, that Francis is the logical result of Vatican II, end quote. And furthermore, that neither John Paul II nor even Benedict XVI during what I call the Benedictine respite, when he began to set things right, despite their relative conservatism, neither be, can be considered guardians of orthodoxy by any historical standard of Catholicism as exemplified by such great popes as St. Pius X. In fact, it is the mission of the Fatima Center, as Kevin says, and I'm quoting him again, to encourage conservative Catholics troubled by Francis to come to the conclusion that the Fatima message and tradition are what are necessary in our present circumstances, not merely the relative conservatism of Francis's two immediate predecessors. Now, I can't let Francis off the hook, of course. I haven't heard the other talks here because I've been preparing for a trial I have to conduct in New York, but I assume there's been a substantial amount of criticism of this pontificate, and rightly so. Because there is something about it which has brought the crisis in the church, which now anyone with any sense admits, to a new level. 
The one substantial difference between Francis and the other conciliar popes is an astounding, relentless attempt to subvert certain moral teachings of the church. First of all, obviously, dismissing the contrary teaching of his two predecessors, he has launched nothing less than what Sister Lucia warned of in her letter to Father, uh, to Cardinal Cafara, the future Cardinal Cafara. And I mean by that the final battle between the Lord and the kingdom of Satan concerning marriage and the family. You've probably heard a great deal already about the synod on the family in Amoris Laetitia. I won't bore you with any repetition of what you already know in that regard. But I will focus on one paragraph, and this is a hydrogen bomb dropped in the middle of the moral theology of the church. Paragraph 303 of Amoris Laetitia. Quote, Yet conscience can do more than recognize that a given situation does not correspond objectively to the overall demands of the gospel. It can also recognize with sincerity and honesty what for now is the most generous response which can be given to God and come to see with a certain moral security that it is what God himself is asking amid the concrete complexity of one's limits while not yet fully the objective ideal. End quote. This, of course, is the destruction of all morality. Because who cannot claim that in the concrete complexity of his limits, he cannot attain to a moral precept which is now reduced to an objective ideal? But we know that the Sixth Commandment in particular, as well as the other negative precepts of the natural law, thou shalt not, are exceptionless. There are no exceptions to these negative precepts of the natural law. There is no excuse based on the complexity of one's limits. And yet Francis has proclaimed authentic magisterium, paragraph 6 of the Buenos Aires guidelines, or rather the Maltese uh, bishops' guidelines, for the implementation of Amoris Laetitia, in which the, uh, the Maltese bishops say, in other more complex circumstances, and when it is not possible to obtain a declaration of nullity, the aforementioned option, living in continence, if you're divorced and remarried, and for some compelling reason you can't separate, may not, in fact, be feasible. And then it goes on to say that in these cases it's possible to be admitted to the sacraments because living in continence, obeying the Sixth Commandment, is not feasible. Nothing is left of the moral order if we admit of this principle in the life of the Church. And it is here that Francis has departed radically, even from the problematical course already set by his immediate predecessors and, of course, by Paul VI. And then, then, in addition, there is this teaching on the death penalty, flatly contradicting revelation itself. God himself prescribes the death penalty in the 20th chapter of Leviticus. God himself in Genesis says that whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, because man is made in the image and likeness of God. Francis says no. The death penalty is, according to him, always and everywhere, immoral as an attack on human dignity, precisely the opposite of what the church has taught for 2,000 years. So here we have what is unique in Francis, this attack on certain moral teachings of the church, which we have never seen in the past 55 years. John Paul II's moral theology, however verbose it might have been, was, was solid. There are certain confusing aspects in his teaching on theology of the body. I won't get into that. But we never had a frontal attack on something as fundamental as the Sixth Commandment. Now, Francis says of himself, I am by nature oblivious and cosciente, and so I go ahead. This is what he said to a group of students the Vatican last May. So in this respect, 
We can say that Francis is both a cause and a symptom of the current ecclesial crisis. But this oblivious pope is a blessing in disguise. We can see this now. Because his clumsy, rather brutal approach to getting what he wants, to imposing his opinions on the church, has awakened a lot of people who were unconsciously accepting the crisis before and, and living with the status quo. There are now some very powerful voices of opposition who in turn are awakening others because Francis has simply gone too far down the trajectory already established. So when you have someone as mainstream as Philip Lawler saying, and I quote, this pope's leadership has become a danger to the faith. When someone like Philip Lawler, who never criticized the pope before, says this about Francis, you know that we have God drawing some good out of an evil situation. People everywhere are waking up. He has shown everyone who has not willfully blinded what traditionalists and so-called Fatimites have been saying from the beginning, that the so-called conciliar renewal would end in the dissolution of the Catholic religion if it were possible. And now we see that it is attempting to claim even the church's teaching on something as basic as thou shalt not commit adultery. There's an article in LifeSite News in which Monsignor Michael Shuyans, a close advisor to John Paul II, has, according to LifeSite, issued a dire warning about the current trajectory of the Catholic Church. In a paper that Shuyans wrote that LifeSite features on its website, he says that the Synod on the Family, meaning, of course, Francis, who stage managed the whole thing, and I quote him, has revealed a profound malaise in the church, and that this involves, and I quote, recurrent debates on the question of remarried, divorced persons, models for the family, the role of women, birth control, surrogate motherhood, homosexuality, euthanasia, and, and I would add also capital punishment. Without naming Francis, Shuyans admits that this, that this pontificate poses the following threat, and I quote, the church is challenged in its very foundations, end quote. Challenged by a pope, but not just this pope. So here we have to remind ourselves, and, and this is the topic at hand, that the crisis did not begin with Francis, who has only exacerbated it. Aside from the moral subversion that is unique to this pontificate and represents the height of the post-Vatican II crisis, what we have seen with Francis is, we have to admit, more or less the same thing we have seen from his two immediate predecessors. For example, rampant ecumenism. Nobody has ever outdone John Paul II in that department. As he declared in Ut Unum Sint, ecumenism, a word that was unknown in the church before 1962, and I quote him, is not just some sort of appendix which is added to the church's traditional activity. Rather, ecumenism is an organic part of her life and work and consequently must pervade all that she is and does. And it was he who bestowed pectoral crosses on fake Anglican bishops. It was he who first participated in joint liturgies with Protestant ministers. It was he who conducted uh, a prayer meeting in St. Peter's Basilica in which, to quote him, I joined the Lutheran archbishops, the primates of Sweden and Finland, for the celebration of Vespers. What about interreligious dialogue? John Paul II's Assisi events are the apex of that scandalous novelty. No one has ever outdone that, not even Francis, with the rather ludicrous prayer for peace 
in the Vatican Gardens with Jews and Muslims, or the even more ludicrous soccer game for peace in 2002. What about religious indifferentism? Well, it was none other than John Paul II in Redemptoris Missio, who sounded the whole Pulse conciliar theme. Quote, different peoples, cultures, and religions are capable of finding common ground in the one divine reality by whatever name it is called, end quote. Whatever name, it's all good. What about popes visiting synagogues? John Paul II was the first. Benedict II. Francis finishes third place in that novelty contest. What about popes visiting mosques? John Paul II did it first, followed by Benedict XVI, who set, and I quote a press account, a new papal record for mosque visits by popes twice in seven years. Well, how about popes visiting Lutheran churches and participating in their liturgy? John Paul II and Benedict XVI have been there and done that long before Francis arrived from Buenos Aires. What about something relatively minor, the exclusive papal press interview in which all kinds of bad things can happen? Well, that originated with John XXIII and Paul VI. They were the pioneers of that innovation. Well, how about airborne press conferences? Benedict XVI did it first in 2007 and again in 2010. What about environmentalism, papal environmentalism? Was Francis the inventor of that? Not at all. John Paul II beat Francis to the punch by 24 years, coining the very phrase ecological crisis, followed by Benedict, who declared that, quote, the ecological crisis shows the urgency of a solidarity which embraces time and space. Finally, what about liturgical abuses? Not even the Pope Francis beach party bingo mass in Rio outdid the repellent liturgical spectacles we had to endure during the papal voyages of John Paul II and even Benedict, who I have to admit looked extremely distressed to have to sit through at least one of them. I think it was the one in Australia. But we have to go further. It has to be said that John Paul II and Benedict XVI and Francis are all in turn points on a continuum that began even before them and had its immediate origin in the ambiguous and vexatious texts of the Second Vatican Council, which are unlike the texts of any other council in church history in certain respects. Ecumenism, dialogue, interreligious dialogue, and the so-called liturgical, liturgical renewal all originated in these texts. And the results of these novelties, whether you take them individually or collectively, has been an ecclesial disaster of unprecedented proportions. I'm not going to rehearse the statistics about the decline in the church. I will give you one statistic. In 1970, the world had 419,278 priests. In 2012, there were 5,000 fewer, even though the Catholic population had doubled. But then you have to ask, how did Vatican II happen? Now we have to go back even further than the council much further in order to understand the council as a culminating historical event. And to set the stage for that part of the discussion, I, I will refer to a famous observation of Dietrich von Hildebrand in 1973. And I quote, the poison of our epoch is slowly seeping into the church herself, and many have failed to see the apocalyptic decline of our time. Now, this observation of Hildebrand comes from quite an authority. Pius XII called him a 20th century doctor of the church. 
And I want to focus on three elements in that observation for the remainder of the talk. First, the poison of our epoch. Secondly, its seepage into the church. And third, the consequent apocalyptic decline of our time. Let's first address the poison of our epoch. What is it? It's the spirit of the age. And what is the spirit of the age? It is two things, principally. First of all, politically speaking, it is the total overthrow of the influence of the Catholic Church over the body politic and the shattering of the unity of the mystical body of Christ. Second, speaking ecclesially, within the church it is the emergence of neo-modernism before the council and its de facto triumph after the council. Let's take the political aspect of this first. And here we have to go back all the way to patient zero in the civilizational epidemic that is now reaching its terminal phase. And patient zero is Martin Luther. Now, we think of Martin Luther's rebellion as a religious rebellion, which, of course, it was. But I want to discuss it under the aspect of the political changes that go, uh, go into the spirit of the age that we witness today. The emergence of the spirit of the age began with his rebellion, but that led immediately to a new kind of a merger between the state and the church. For example, the Church of England, Luther's uh, German principalities, and then Switzerland with the Calvinist institutes. And what you had immediately was a reversal of the proper order of things. Whereas before, the state power had been subject to the church, now the monarch reigned over the religious power in the new version, the Protestant version of the confessional state. Listen to this quotation from an American academic who was also a federal bureaucrat named, appropriately enough, Luther Hess Waring in his book, The Political Theories of Martin Luther. He said, quote, The Reformation was not only a religious and intellectual, but a political revolt. The ecclesiastical Reformation led to a political one. Luther was or became the instrument not merely of a religious reformation, but of a many-sided revolution. It would be a great mistake, a grievous error, to regard the movement of which Luther was the source and center as purely religious. Now, Luther didn't deny the traditional teaching on the divine ordination of man to life in the state, in a community, with a governing authority. But his politics were modified according to his rhetorical needs. This involved a double movement, away from the Catholic confessional state and toward the Lutheran confessional state, because his rebellion against the church required state power in order to impose it on the masses. The old Catholic order had to be demolished in order to make room for Luther's creation, and that was an impossible task without the coercive power of the state. And another problem for Luther and his Swiss Reform counterparts was the horde of heretics they themselves had unleashed via the principle of private judgment. For example, the Anabaptists, who were already preaching open rebellion against the new Protestant political establishment that was emerging. And in Germany and Switzerland, the civil authorities were only too happy to take advantage of the new religion for plunder and expansion of their power created by the separation from Rome. So Luther provided an excellent vehicle for that purpose. And what resulted, uh, writes Hess, whom I just quoted, was, and listen to this carefully, absolute political power within the state, supreme power to regulate all affairs within the state, 
and yet itself subject to no authority, end quote. In other words, the civil power becomes supreme and subjugates the church in a reversal of the proper order of things in the confessional state, although you still had monarchies. Then we look at something like the Peace of Westphalia, which enshrined for all of Europe the terms of the Peace of Augsburg, which was entered into nine years after Luther's death. And the basic principle I would focus on here is cuius regio, eius religio. The religion of the king is the religion of the realm. If he's a Lutheran, the kingdom is Lutheran, and so forth. So you have a confessional state, but it's a perverted one, in which the king determines the religion, and the religion is subject to the king, not the other way around as it is in the Catholic confessional state. And listen to what the great Catholic counter-revolutionary of the 19th century, Don Juan Donoso Cortez, said about this whole development. Quote, the real danger to human societies commenced on the day the great heresy of the 16th century, meaning Lutheranism, acquired the right of citizenship in Europe, which it did with the Peace of Westphalia, the Peace of Augsburg, and Rome's surrender to this new order, separation of, of the state from Roman authority. Since then, he writes, there is no revolution which does not involve for society a danger of death. This consists in the fact that as they are all founded on the Protestant heresy, all founded on the Protestant heresy, they are all fundamentally heretical. Now, this religious revolution, which still preserved monarchy, was then followed by a philosophical revolution. The founders of liberalism, Hobbes and Locke, made their appearance on the scene. Hobbes died in 1679. Locke died in 1704. They call Locke the confused man's Hobbes because Locke makes it sound as if uh, he's advocating a conservative and traditional approach to political power, but he's actually advocating what Hobbes is advocating, the raw power of the state. According to Locke, power comes from the people, and there is a right to revolution. How many people can determine this right to revolution? Locke grudgingly admits, finally, any Tom, Dick, or Harry who thinks that the king has violated his charter, his trust of the people, can declare the charter to be at an end and demand the exercise of the right to revolution. Locke also was the first, a pioneer, in the separation of church and state. He disqualifies the church from any role in political life, precisely because, according to him, we don't know which is the true church. We don't know it because Protestantism has separated itself from Rome and divided into multiple conflicting sects. So Locke takes advantage of that situation, gives us the first liberal cure for the disease of liberalism. Since we don't know the true church, we can't have any church guiding the life of the state. It took about 80 years or so for the first working model of Locke's political theory. Power comes from the people. There is a right to revolution. Monarchy can be overthrown in favor of democracy. And that working model was the United States of America, 1776. The first working model of a non-monarchical democratic republic extending over a vast region with a president that is, in fact, a disguised monarch, as the Anti-Federalists warned, but we were told that, uh, that we had been liberated from the chains of monarchy. And there's a story I like to tell about the president of the United States. I was on vacation in Florida once. I was playing tennis at a retirement community, and I was sitting with these retirees. They're all talking about their various medical conditions, which is what they do. And I brought up the subject of politics, and I said, you know, we have, we have President Obama, and he lives in a mansion in Washington, 
costs about a billion dollars a year to maintain him in the style to which he is accustomed. He flies around in this massive jet plane. He goes on these multi-million dollar vacations. He commands the world's most powerful army. He has the power of life and death by means of the presidential pardon. And with a few simple commands, he can destroy the whole world in a nuclear war. And then I paused for dramatic effect, and I said, thank God we have no king, though. So don't kid yourself, we never got rid of monarchy. It's just disguised in the form of the absolute will of the majority, giving us a president who exercises his absolute will according to the will of the majority. And then, of course, there was 1789, the French Revolution, followed by the European and Latin American revolutions, overthrowing monarchy everywhere, so that by the late 19th century, with the exception of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Wilhelm II Hohenzollern in Germany, and the vestigial monarch in, in, London, in England, which doesn't count for anything anymore. England, in my opinion, is basically a republic. With those exceptions, the entire once Christian West now experienced the emergence of the secular state separated from the church and recognizing no authority from itself, uh, higher than itself. Now, Pope Leo describes this entire process in his encyclical Immortality Day in 1885. This isn't just me talking. This is the magisterium assessing this whole trajectory in the establishment of the political spirit of the age. Immortality Day, 1885, and I quote, There was once a time when states were governed by the philosophy of the gospel. Then it was that the power and divine virtue of Christian wisdom had diffused itself throughout the laws, institutions, and morals of the people, permeating all ranks and relations of civil society. Then, too, the religion instituted by Jesus Christ established firmly in befitting dignity, flourished everywhere by the favor of princes and the legitimate protection of magistrates. And church and state were happily united in concord and friendly interchange of good offices. The state, constituted in this way, bore fruits important beyond all expectation. Christian Europe was subdued, barbarous nations, changed them from a savage to a civilized condition, from superstition to true worship. It victoriously rolled back the tide of Mohammedan conquest, retained the headship of civilization, stood forth in the front rank as the leader and teacher of all in every branch of national culture, bestowed on the world the gift of true and many-sided liberty, true liberty, the liberty of the sons and daughters of Christ. And he goes on to say a similar state of things would certainly have continued had the agreement of the two powers, church and state, been lasting. But, referring to Martin Luther, that harmful and deplorable passion for innovation, which was aroused in the 16th century, threw first of all into confusion the Christian religion, and next, as I've just shown you, invaded the precincts of philosophy, whence it spread amongst all classes of society. From this source, he goes on to say, as from a fountainhead, burst forth all those later tenets of unbridled license, which in the midst of the terrible upheavals of the last century, meaning the revolutions I outlined for you very briefly, were wildly conceived and boldly proclaimed as the principles and foundation of that new conception of law, which was not merely previously unknown, but was at variance on many points with not only the Christian, but even the natural law. 
And he gives us the elements of this new conception of law. And I'm quoting him. Each one is his own master, as to be in no sense under the rule of any other individual. Each is free to think on every subject, just as he may choose, and to do whatever he may like to do. No man has any right to rule over other men. Government is nothing more or less than the will of the people. And people being under the power of itself alone is its own ruler. The authority of God is passed over in silence, just as if there were no God. Or as if men, whether in their individual capacity or bound together in society, owed nothing to God. Or as if there could be a government of which the whole origin and power did not reside in God himself. The denial of the ultimate origin of political authority in God himself is fundamental to the spirit of the age. No, we are the authority, not God. And another error he specifies. The state does not consider itself bound by any kind of duty toward God. The state is not obliged to make a public profession of any religion. All questions that concern religion are to be referred to private judgment. Everyone is free to follow whatever religion he prefers or none at all. The judgment of each person's conscience is independent of all law. The most unrestrained opinions may be openly expressed as to the practice or omission of divine worship. And finally, everyone has unbounded license to think whatever he chooses and publish abroad whatever he thinks. Now, once this new order is established, and it was by the time Leo wrote this, there's no logical stopping point along the way to, to what Leo himself called final disaster. There's no stopping point till you reach abortion, infanticide of even born children, gay rights, transgender rights, any form of madness approved or tolerated by the majority. So this is the political spirit of the age. Pluralism, state secularity, the separation of church and state, in short, the radical rejection of the social kingship of Christ over not only individual men, but nations in societies in which abortion, contraception, pornography, homosexuality, divorce and remarriage, all the evils that are now considered rights would be unthinkable and would be illegal. Now, we reach the second part of the, of the elements of von Hildebrand's statement. The seepage of the poison of our epic into the church herself. How did that happen? In a word, modernism. It is what St. Pius X called the synthesis of all heresies. And that synthesis involves nothing short of a merger of the church into this new world of secular democracy and church-state separation and pluralism and freedom of conscience and freedom of thought, freedom of whatever, and the corresponding reform and updating of the church's doctrines and practices so that they are, in a word, sufficiently modern. In condemning the errors of the modernists in his great encyclical Pascendi, St. Pius X discussed both the political and the religious character of the system of modernist errors. Now, politically, the aspect we've just discussed, the modernist declares with John Locke and those who followed him that the church must come to an amicable arrangement, quote, with the state. The same state that overthrew by force and violence the church's divine authority over political society. According to the modernist, this pious intent, church and state are strangers by reason of the diversity of their ends, that of the church being spiritual, while that of the state is temporal. That is not the Catholic teaching. The spheres are distinct, but they overlap, and the state must respond to the church's authority in the area where the two spheres overlap, even if they remain distinct. 
Formally, it was possible to subordinate the temporal to the spiritual, says Pius X, and to speak of some questions as mixed, allowing the church the position of queen and mistress. But now, says the modernist, this doctrine is repudiated, alike by philosophy, which I've discussed, and history. The state must therefore be separated from the church and the Catholic from the citizen. Now listen to this description. Every Catholic, this is the modernist notion of the Catholic, from the fact that he is also a citizen, has the right and duty to work for the common good in the way he thinks best without troubling himself about the authority of the church, without paying any heed to its wishes, to its counsels, its orders, nay, even in spite of its reprimands, end quote. I give you Andrew Cuomo and Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> These are the modernist Catholics par excellence, and they're typical of so-called Catholic politicians today. Now, moving from the political aspect to the religious one, the modernist wishes simply to do away with dogma and to reform, meaning modernize, meaning destroy, the church's traditional practices and, above all, of course, the traditional liturgy. The modernist basically wants to change everything in the church according to his love of novelty. And so Pius X summarizes these errors under the heading, the modernist as reformer. The modernist as reformer, he says, is possessed by a, quote, reforming mania and all Catholicism. There is absolutely nothing on which it does not fasten. Reform of philosophy, especially the seminaries, the scholastic philosophy is to be relegated to the history of philosophy among obsolete systems. We get rid of St. Thomas Aquinas and therefore sound philosophy. And with the, with the collapse of sound philosophy, theology goes right down the tubes as well. Young men, says the modernist as reformer, are to be taught modern philosophy. In other words, they're, they're taught to think illogically, to have their heads filled with mush. Rational theology, says the modernist, is to have modern philosophy for its foundation. In other words, rational theology is to become totally irrational. Dogmas and their evolution are to be harmonized with science and industry. So now we have the evolutionary version of Genesis, for example, in which Adam was an ape given a soul, born of an ape, or something along those lines. In the catechism, no dogmas are to be inserted except those that have been duly reformed and are within the capacity of the people. Now, regarding worship, says the modernist, as reformer, the number of external devotions is to be reduced or at least steps must be taken to prevent their further increase. Ecclesiastical government has to be reformed in all its branches, but especially in its disciplinary and dogmatic parts. And next, in its spirit with the public conscience, which is not wholly for democracy, a share in ecclesiastical government should, however, be given to the lower ranks of the clergy and even to the laity, and authority should be decentralized. What do we have now? We have Episcopal conferences, we have presbyteral uh, uh, assemblies in the dioceses, and now we have the synodal church, according to Francis. He openly says, I wish to decentralize all authority in the church. At the same time, of course, he exercises a brutal centralization to get what he wants. Now, finally, and this basically sums it all up, the modernist reformer says that ecclesiastical authority must change its line of conduct in the social and political world while keeping outside political and social organization. It must adapt itself to those which exist in order to penetrate them with its spirit. Church must change to keep up with the times. Now, 
Pius X did what he could to suppress modernism. To a lesser extent, so did Pius XI and Pius XII, for example, with his encyclical Omani Generis. But when their collective finger was removed from the dike at the Second Vatican Council, a flood burst forth from the dam that gave way. So we have Cardinal Sunin saying that Vatican II is the French Revolution in the Church. We have Yves Congar saying the Church has had peacefully its October Revolution. And we have Cardinal Ratzinger, before he became Pope, saying this about the primary conciliar text, Gaudium et Space, which inaugurated this opening to the wonderful modern world. He said that it is uh, to be viewed as, quote, a counter-syllabus. In other words, counter to the syllabus of errors of Pius IX, who condemned all the errors of political modernity I've outlined for you. A counter-syllabus, and as such, an attempt at an official reconciliation on the part of the church with the new era inaugurated in 1789. An attempt by the church to reconcile herself to the spirit of the age exemplified in the French Revolution. And so we have Paul VI at the end of the council saying this about the modern world. But one must realize that this council, which exposed itself to human judgment, churches letting itself be judged by human judgment, insisted very much more upon this pleasant side of man rather than on his unpleasant one. Its attitude was very much and deliberately optimistic. A wave of affection and admiration flowed from the council over the modern world of humanity. Instead of direful prognostics, messages of trust issued from the council to the present-day world. The modern world's values were not only respected but honored its efforts approved, its aspirations purified and blessed, end quote. These are essentially the terms of a surrender, practically speaking, to the spirit of the age, both politically and religiously. And this was accompanied, of course, by the absolutely disastrous adaptation of the traditional liturgy to suit this sensibility of the modern world. Listen to what Paul VI said about his own decision in his general audience address of November 26, 1969, speaking of the new liturgy that he was about to foist upon the church. Quote, it is here that the greatest newness is going to be noticed, the newness of language, no longer Latin, but the spoken language will be the principal language of the mass. The introduction of the vernacular will certainly be a great sacrifice for those who know the beauty, the power, and the expressive sacrality of Latin. Yeah, if you like beauty, you know. We are parting with the speech of the Christian centuries. We are becoming like profane intruders in the literary preserve of sacred utterance. We will lose a great part of that stupendous and incomparable artistic and spiritual thing, the Gregorian chant. We have reason for regret, reason almost for bewilderment. What can we put in the place of that language of the angels? Why? We are giving up something of press, priceless worth. But why? This is the Pope. What is more precious than these loftiest of our church's values? All good questions. He had no sensible answer to them other than, well, English is easier, the vernacular is easier to understand. And, of course, the result was, as Cardinal Ratzinger said, and I quoted at the beginning of the talk, the collapse of the liturgy, which he himself says is central to the crisis in the church began long before Francis. And then, of course, Paul VI proceeded to abolish the oath against modernism. 
And the index of forbidden books went down into the memory hole. And the church was decentralized with Episcopal conferences, presbyteral councils, and parish councils. And religious liberty in the modern sense was accepted. The church abandoned her claim on nations and de facto abandoned the social kingship of Christ's doctrine. And with those developments came the end, the actual end of the church's stance as an opponent of state power with moral authority from God and authority superior to any earthly ruler's authority. Then, of course, ecumenism led to the abandonment of the dogma that outside the church there is no salvation, at least de facto. It's still there on paper. In fact, all the doctrines and dogmas are there on paper. But in practice, as we can see, everything has changed. And as I show in my book, The Great Facade, all of this has happened without a single actual papal command that we must embrace any of these novelties. You can be a Catholic in every way you could before the Second Vatican Council. You can live your faith and practice your faith and teach your children as if Vatican II never happened and you would be a Catholic in perfectly good standing. That's why I call it the Great Facade. And we know that in Samorum Pontificum, the greatest element of the Great Facade, the fraud of all time in church history, was exposed by Benedict XVI, in which he said that the traditional Latin Mass was never juridically abrogated, and in his explanatory letter to the bishops, he added, was in principle always permitted. Thanks. Now you tell us. <laughs> After 40 years of deception, he unmasked the deception. Now, Paul VI lamented this disaster he had caused. He knew the church was falling to pieces all around him, but he could not admit to himself that his own reckless decisions were responsible for it. There's a rather ludicrous and kind of sad episode in the midst of all this chaos. His mentor, Jacques Maritain, another deluded visionary who thought the council was going to be the great renewal of the church and would bring about a miraculous conversion of the modern world, his, his mentor and his fellow deluded visionary said, we have a terrible situation here. What you should really do is enunciate a credo of the people of God, reminding people of all the things that Catholics believe. Just a moment, wasn't Vatican II supposed to be the council that restated the wonders of Catholic dogma in accessible terms so that the whole world could see just how beautiful and reasonable the teaching of the church was? Well, here we are in the aftermath of the council. Paul VI, in desperation, has to enunciate a new credo of the people of God. It's basically an enumeration of all the doctrines and dogmas of the Nicene Creed. And who wrote it for him? Jacques Maritain, the principal author of the Credo of the People of God, was a layman helping the Pope issue this rather pathetic document reaffirming everything that Vatican II was supposed to have enshrined in a new and wonderful and accessible way and everyone had forgotten it all in the space of a few years. Now, we jump forward to the year 2010. Monsignor Guido Pozzo, Secretary of the Pontifical Commission, Ecclesia Day at the time, speaks of, of what Paul VI confronted and what we confront today. He said, and I quote, July 2nd, 2010, Unfortunately, the effects as enumerated by Paul VI have not disappeared. A foreign way of thinking has entered into the Catholic world, stirring up confusion, seducing many souls, and disorienting the faithful. There is a spirit of self-demolition that pervades modernism. Now, I told you a few moments ago 
that the penetration of the spirit of the age into the church, ecclesially speaking, is the penetration of modernism. And here is the very secretary of the Ecclesia Dei Commission, the Vatican Department in charge of traditionalist Catholics in the traditional liturgy, telling us that this spirit of self-demolition, witnessed by Paul VI, which he unleashed, pervades modernism. And a key aspect of this foreign way of thinking, said Pozo, is the ideology of dialogue. He refers to a paraconciliar ideology, which uses dialogue to subvert the church by, quote, emptying it of meaning more and more, and obscuring the urgency and the call of conversion to Christ and adherence to his church, end quote. This is him speaking in 2010 after 50-plus years of this insanity. And the final outcome of it all is a reduction of the faithful to a remnant. It's basically the remnant who have more or less not gone along with the changes. And here you have to assess the impact and the emergence uh, of this remnant of the new liturgy. Listen to what Klaus Gamber says. This is in the book Reform of the Roman Liturgy, written by Gamber with the approval of then-Cardinal Ratzinger, who wrote the French-language preface to the book. And I quote, A Catholic who ceased to be an active member of the church for the past generation, and who, having decided to return to the church, wants to become religiously active again, probably would not recognize today's church as the one he had left. Simply by entering a Catholic church, particularly if it happens to be one of ultra-modern design, he would feel as if he had entered a strange, foreign place. He would think that he must have come to the wrong address and that he accidentally ended up in some other Christian religious community. If that, by the way. So this is a demonstration of the operation of the principle lex orandi, lex credendi. You believe the way you worship. If you worship in a way that minimizes the teachings of the faith above all the real presence, you will cease over time to believe in them. You will unconsciously be boiled alive like the proverbial frog in the pot, and you won't even know what's happening to you. Now, on the other hand, those who have maintained their attachment to the traditional liturgy, through no merit of their own, it's the grace that God makes available to everyone, have maintained fidelity. Maybe you've seen the survey in the Catholic Herald, conducted by Father Donald Kloster and certain collaborators who are expert in statistical analysis and polling. Here's what the survey found. 99% of Catholics who attend the traditional Latin Mass, fulfill their weekly obligation. 98% go to confession at least once a year. Only 2% of Catholics who attend the traditional Mass approve of contraception. 89% of Catholics who attend the new Mass approve of contraception. 51% support abortion. And 67% support same-sex marriage. Numerous surveys have shown that, not just this one. In fact, this, this survey relies on these other surveys for that particular statistic. Women who attend the traditional Latin Mass have a fertility rate of 3.6 compared to 2.3 for Novus Ordo women. doesn't sound like a great deal difference, but it means 60% larger family sizes. You know, I've been on uh, radio shows, in particular Mike Church's show, and I, I say this to Protestants and Catholics. Do not complain to me about the outcome of democracy if you're using birth control. We lose elections because there aren't enough of us, because you haven't bothered to have children. If every family, Protestant and Catholic alike, had four or five children, the Democrats could never win an election. Do not bellyache about the outcome of the last election. You're responsible for it because you wouldn't procreate.
the way God intended. Another statistic. Latin Mass attendees don't donate five times more in the collection basket. And finally, Latin Mass Catholics go to Mass every Sunday at 4.5 times the rate of those who attend the new Mass. It is not that Latin Mass Catholics are better than other Catholics. We're not the Pharisees. We're not the pure ones. We're all sinners. And in fact, I'm generalizing, of course, because there are Catholics who attend the new Mass who are extremely devout and pious and put certain traditionalists who are indeed Pharisaical to shame. But the generality holds. You believe the way you worship. And if you maintain a solid Catholic faith and have a large family and do all of the things a good Catholic should do and you're attending the new Mass, it is in spite of what is offered to you. Because what is being offered to you is stones when you want bread. And how many Catholics in the new Mass who have never seen the traditional Mass go to it for the first time and come away weeping saying, why did they steal that from us? I don't know how many times I've heard that. So finally, I'm coming toward the close. We return to Francis, who stands at the end of this long, disastrous trajectory. And we can see that he's not the principal cause of the present crisis, but only its most acute symptom to date. And if you want another example of how acute the symptom is in Francis, listen to this quote from Evangelii Gaudium. I dream of a missionary option, that is, a missionary impulse, capable of transforming everything so that the church's customs, ways of doing things, times and schedules, language and structures can be suitably channeled for the evangelization of today's world rather than for her self-preservation, end quote. So after just about everything in the church has been changed, he wants to do it again. This is the modernist mentality, the modernist as reformer to perfection. This is exactly the reforming mania, quote, unquote, that St. Pius X condemned in Pascendi under the heading, the modernist as reformer. And Francis is also perfectly accommodated to the political spirit of the age. In an interview with Lacroix magazine in May of 2016, he said this, states must be secular. Confessional states end badly. That goes against the grain of history, end quote. He doesn't say we have to tolerate the political order, as Leo did. He doesn't say we have to make use of modern liberties as best we can to try to bring back all of society to the form and pattern of Christianity, as Leo said. No, he says states must be secular. And he says confessional states end badly. They don't end badly. They are ended badly by bloody revolutions, by evil, violent men, by Masonic cabals who killed on a mass scale to end the confessional state, which could not have been ended, as I show in my book, Liberty of the God That Failed, without the use of force and violence at every key juncture. The people didn't want that. They didn't want the overthrow of the, of the Catholic state. They didn't want the overthrow of monarchy. They were too busy working their farms and making a living and raising their children and praying the Angelus and observing the 40 days a year of feasts when they didn't have to work. They were busy living Catholic lives. None of this was their idea. It was revolutionary cadres who hated the church and were willing to kill to get what they wanted that ended the Catholic confessional state. And here he talks about a grain of history, as if he were a Hegelian who says the world spirit rolls out the new order of things in the course of history. No, it was willful men who committed violence to get what they wanted. 
And so finally, the last part of the talk, the third element of von Hildebrand's statement, the apocalyptic decline of our time. The spirit of the age has penetrated the church, and now we face the apocalyptic decline of our time. Listen to Pius XII in Evangelii Preconis, around 1950, I believe. Venerable brethren, you are well aware that almost the whole human race today is allowing itself to be driven into two opposing camps, for Christ or against Christ. The human race is involved today in a supreme crisis, which will issue in its salvation by Christ or in its dire destruction. And that is exactly where Our Lady came to Fatima in 1917, when the moral and spiritual collapse of Western civilization and all of former Christendom was already underway and accelerating with the end of World War I. The last monarchies in Europe were gone. Even the libertarian Hans Hermann Hoppe says that with the destruction of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, civilization came to an end. This is a libertarian. Now, his solution is not monarchy. He wants some sort of nonsensical stateless society in which all state provides security protection. I don't know, some nonsense like that. But a libertarian admits that with the end of monarchy, which was more respectful of individual freedoms and so-called democracy, the mass democracies that oppress us right now, uh, that, that was the end of civilization. Now, in the third secret, Our Lady warns us of a crisis in both church and state during a time of apostasy in the church that, as we know, begins at the top. And here we cannot ignore the role of the council itself. Benedict XVI, in his last address to the clergy of Rome, speaking of a council of the media, said this, we know that this council of the media was accessible to everyone. Therefore, this was the dominant one, the more effective one, and it created so many disasters, so many problems, so much suffering, seminaries closed, convents closed, the liturgy banalized, banalizzata in Italian, a banalized liturgy. How in heaven's name did the Roman liturgy of the Holy Catholic Church become banalized? He deflects the blame to a council of the media, but it was not the media that implemented the council, but rather the bishops and the conciliar popes, including Paul VI, who spent the rest of his life wringing his hands and weeping over what he had unleashed. But at least the point is made. There would be no council of the media if not for the very nature of the conciliar text itself and the unprecedented opening to the world that Paul VI held as a great event, only to spend the rest of his life wondering how he could undo the damage that was happening all around him. Now, it was also Benedict who tied the ecclesial crisis to a world crisis in numerous addresses during his pontificate. He spoke of, quote, the darkness that poses a real threat to mankind, the real threat to our existence and to the world in general. He spoke also of how in vast areas of the world the faith is in danger of dying out like a flame which no longer has fuel, that God is disappearing from the human horizon. Humanity is losing its bearings with increasingly evident destructive effects. He also says, and I quote, in the Old and New Testament, the Lord proclaims judgment on the unfaithful vineyard. Yet the threat of judgment also concerns us, the church in Europe and the West in general. Quoting scripture, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Finally, he said moral collapses, consensus is collapsing. Consensus without which juridical and political structures cannot function because of the spirit of the age. Consequently, the forces mobilized for the defense of such structures 
seem doomed to failure. Of course they are, because there's no longer a link between church and state. And then he says, and I quote, the very future of the world is at stake. And we cannot forget that it was none other than Benedict who tied the ecclesial and world crisis precisely to the message of Fatima. Remember, during his pilgrimage to Fatima in 2010, he revealed in a question he chose beforehand to be put to him during the press conference, the third secret reveals realities involving the future of the church, which are gradually taking shape and becoming evident. He goes on to say, as for these new things which we can find in this message, meaning the third secret, there is also the fact that attacks on the Pope and the church come not only from without, but precisely from within the church, from sin existing within the church. This is something we have always known. But today we are seeing it in a really terrifying way, that the greatest persecution of the church comes not from her enemies without, but arises from sin within the church. The church thus has a deep need to relearn penance, to accept purification, to learn forgiveness on the one hand, but also the need for justice. Forgiveness does not replace justice. Don't tell that to Francis, who right now is embroiled in cover-ups of homosexual corruption that is erupting in the church as never before. You thought 2002 was bad? This is infinitely worse. And I won't even go into the sham summit that he conducted, which refused to address the real problem, which we all know is the homosexual corruption of the clergy. And then there's his final speech in which he spends more time blaming the rest of the world for the abuse of minors. This country, that country, UNICEF, the United Nations, this convention, that convention, uh, as if to say, everyone in the world is abusing children. We're just part of the problem. That speech was an outrage. What he's really doing is concealing a disastrous, and I would say a, a final stage of the post-conciliar crisis in the church, the homosexual corruption of the clergy, now worse than ever before. So to wrap up, where do we go from here? There was only one way to go, and none other than Monsignor Guido Pozzo, who I quoted a moment ago, describes it. And I quote, listen carefully to this prescription. It's everything I've been talking about in one paragraph. Against such deviations, it is necessary to retrieve and recover the spiritual and cultural foundation of Christian civilization. That is, faith in God, transcendent and creator, provident and judge, whose only begotten Son became incarnate, died and rose again for the redemption of the world, and who has poured out the grace of the Holy Spirit for the remission of sins and for making men sharers in the divine nature. Is it any coincidence that Francis removed Pozo from the pontifical Commission Ecclesia Day when he abolished the commission and took its staff and moved them into the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. No staff member was removed, none, except for Monsignor Pozzo, who's very sympathetic to traditionalists, by the way. So how do we follow Pozzo's prescription? How do we restore Christian civilization without recovering everything the church has lost over the past 55 years? How do we do that barring a miracle? Humanly, this is impossible. But we know that with God, all things are possible. And we return once again to the message of Fatima. This possibility of a complete restoration of church and state stands at the very heart of the Fatima prophecies with their call for the consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary.
With that consecration will come Russia's conversion and thereafter the triumph of the Immaculate Heart. Well, what is this triumph? Here's what Antonio Sochi says in his book, The Fourth Secret of Fatima, which I had the privilege of translating from his very beautiful Italian. This triumph, says Sochi, quote, will have a resounding historical and even cultural and political obviousness, like the victory at Lepanto, but even greater. We find ourselves before a prophecy that announces a radical and extraordinary change in the world, an overthrow of the mentality dominating modernity, the whole mentality I've sketched for you today, a total change in modern history through the hearts of Jesus and Mary, end quote. Francis says that the return to the confessional state would go against the grain of history. Our Lady begs to differ with him. This is what the triumph of the Immaculate Heart is all about, the overthrow of the mentality dominating modernity. And that miraculous result, says Soji, will, and I quote, remind the Pope of the divine power of which he is truly the depository. But not this Pope, apparently despite the optimism I expressed at the outset of his pontificate. If you go online, you will see video of me praising Francis on the night of his election, saying that to me he seemed like a very Marian pope. I wrote columns in defense of him for at least several weeks thereafter, saying he seems to be a very Marian pope. Will he be the pope that does the consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart? I had no axe to grind about, about Francis or any other pope. I was glad to see that we had a new pope. I assumed the best... And soon he confirmed the worst. There's no, way, no other way to say it. But we can have confidence that the day will come when a holy and courageous pope finally does what Our Lady requested. And all these ruinous novelties of the past half century are swept aside as if they were nothing, including those of Francis and his vainglorious vision of a church totally remade according to this dream of his. And this integral restoration of the faith will happen at the very moment when everything seems lost. We all know the prophecy of Our Lady of Good Success, and I quote it as I close. To be delivered from the slavery of these heresies, those whom the merciful love of my son has destined for this restoration will need great willpower, perseverance, courage, and confidence in God to try the faith and trust of these just ones. There will be times when all will seem lost and paralyzed it will be the happy beginning of the complete restoration. Now, the Council of Nicaea, to give us some hope for the present day, met in 325. And for 55 years thereafter, despite the Nicene Creed, the Arian heresy flourished everywhere, and the church was almost overcome by the Arian heresy until it was finally ended, as history tells us, Definitively, by the decree of the Emperor Theodosius in 380, 55 years later. Well, if we reckon 55 years from the end of the Second Vatican Council in 1965, that means we can expect at least the beginning of the Restoration in 2020. So, take heart. <laughs> Only one more year to go. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this presentation brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. We invite you to visit our website, 
www.fatima.org. Immaculate Heart of Mary, Ora Pro Nobis.